right. Welcome to the Slow Twitch podcast. My name is Eric Wynn. I am joined by Ryan Heisler, as almost always. And uh, Ryan, we've got a massive, massive guest today. Do you want to introduce him? Yeah, no. I mean, we were joking about this off air, but, uh, you know, we got the opportunity to get arguably the man who is succeeding the Dos Equis guy as the most interesting man in the world. Ken Rideout, how the hell are you? <laughs> oh, man, you guys are too kind. You just made me feel better than I felt about myself in years. I, uh, man, I don't even know what to say. Thank you. I, I, I tend to be very self-deprecating, but I do pride myself on, if nothing else, being interesting. Yeah, and I mean, for all intents and purposes, right, like you've been in triathlon, you're really into running right now, like you've taken that mantle of being really interesting and doing super interesting things. And so we're super excited to have you on and be able to talk to you about it. Um, but, you know, as uh, as we usually do here on the podcast, we're first going to recap the weekend that was in triathlon, um, which, you know, unfortunately for a lot of reasons, right? Like um, Frankfurt wound up being kind of a um, a footnote in triathlon as compared to Hamburg and then Roth, right? So despite being the Women's European Championship, um, you know, just from an overall numbers perspective and hype perspective, like it was really kind of quiet by comparison, Eric. Yeah, maybe. I don't... Um... It, it, it's hard to say, right? Because um, there's a lot of other things going on in the world. Uh, we got the Tour de France going on. We had F1 going on that day. Um, and then, you know, Roth stole a lot of the um, <clears throat> big women talent the week before. Um, and then, and then, you know, the Americans dominated the race, which if you look at a percentage across the world of triathletes, um, you know, America doesn't rank in the top percentage of triathletes globally. And so anytime you've got Americans that go over to Germany and just kick the shit out of all the other German females, um, you know, German papers don't want to write about it as much. Well, I mean, the shameful part about it is that if you missed this race, you missed a hell of an event in terms of, you know, Sarah True winning, uh, beating Sky Mench for uh, for the win, but um, just from an overall dynamic perspective, it was one of the more interesting races to watch unfold. And this was kind of one of those cases where it's like, yes, Ironman racing, even though it's an eight or nine hour event, can actually be compelling for almost the majority of it because you had you know like you had a swim that actually mattered and a more than six minute gap between your leading group and the rest of the chase. And then pretty much everybody who wound up competing for the win all came together on the bike at the halfway mark. So you had this really exciting last end of the bike. And then it turned into, you know, kind of a run show and you saw people blow up. And that's something that just doesn't happen with the kind of frequency that it used to. You know, I, I think I texted you where I said, like, this is like watching a 2008 men's race, you know, like 
just a bunch of people racing head to head and letting the chips fall where they may. Yeah. And, and what it, what I felt like it, it illustrated is where, where women's racing is now going because they're no longer lumped in with the slow age group men. And so there's that dynamic there that has been taken away where, um, we've got, you know, them or we're their captive audience. Right. And so there's more cameras, uh, there's more eyes on the whole group as a whole. Um, and so we're able to see those dynamics and, and, and the slow age group men are not in their way. And so they're kind of forced to battle each other instead of battle age group men that are slower than, than the female pros. Um, and so it, it, it creates this cool dynamic, which ultimately, I mean, we, we kind of saw that for the first time in Kona last year yep. when the women had their own race. Right. And we talked about it as an industry of how amazing that race was. Well, it's because there's not a lot of slow age or pro men in, in the way. Um, and so, you know, going into these future world championships where the men and women have been separated, um, not only in the pro division, but as the race as a whole, I think we're going to start to see a little bit more of that excitement that comes forward with the the women racing in general, which to your point, Ryan, it was, it was really cool to watch. Like, and even, even Sarah True and Sky Munch and, you know, they all talked about that, how they were super <laughs> excited to be kind of them on their own. And they talked about the battles that they had during the bike and the battles that they had during the run. And it was, it was really cool to see. Can I just, can I say something about uh, Sarah True? Always. Yes. Sarah True is like one of the nicest people I've ever met. She's a dear friend. Her husband, Ben, is an, is a superstar elite runner. I love both of them. I was at their wedding. I'm really close with them. To see Sarah come back and win as a mom and like kick ass is just, it's unbelievable. It's so like, it reminds me a little bit of Des Linden winning the Boston Marathon in 18 after coming in a close second in 11. Just like, just incredible redemption where when they're so close, like Sarah in the last few years has been in the Olympics, never really like had her best races at the, her best efforts at the biggest races per se, right? I'm, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying, and then you see as they start to get older, you're like, man, I think this might have passed them by. And then to see them rise up and come back and claim a victory of this magnitude is just, man, it warms my heart. It like it, it honestly, it, it, it makes me feel emotional for them. When I saw Des Linden win in 2018, I was like, I, I was crying. I was like, God damn, what a what a journey to stay the course. Because in 11, I was like, man, that's to get that close it's just probably never going to happen again so same for sarah i'm just so happy to see her win her and ben are just they're the nicest people in the sport i love them yeah and they're also fellow east coasters hell yeah they're, they're about an hour north of me yeah so. they're like rinny and tim in the same category too as uh athlete couples just love them to death awesome people yeah now ken you just did this crazy race that i wanted to talk to you about it was called the kobe march Correct. What what the fuck did you just do, man? Like that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's you're actually, like Karen, like six. You you're like this superhuman fast marathon, half marathon age group champ, and all of a sudden you just go long course and carry like a sixty pound bag like across dude, the desert for five days. 
<laughs> it was the craziest story. My friend Gary Brown, who runs sales at Equinox, he, he had connected me with um, this an, a dude named Scott DeRue, who's the president of Equinox, former dean of uh, Michigan Business School for years. And they just wanted to, he just wanted to connect because he's into running. You know, he's just more a participant, not really trying to win races, but just trying to do epic shit. And um, so I connected with him and we're chit-chatting about the race. And I don't know what the hell made me say. I'm, I don't think I'm arrogant at all. I have complete blind faith in myself, but I never say to, tried to convey a message of like, I'm in my mind, I'm going to kill everyone. But I don't try to flaunt that attitude. But that internal dialogue like you have to have to try to to try to win at anything and um so he told me that and in my head i was like i could fucking win this race look at this this i mean yes it looks hard but if these guys can do it like this is about consistency being able to recover day to day and i've been running average of 10 plus miles a day for like five years if someone else can do it, I can do it. I know that there's not more that I can train than I do. I, like, there's no way that someone's training more other than like elite Kenyans and Ethiopians, uh, and, and and obviously some American pro marathoners. So basically, it was a um, it was a six seven day stage race. It consisted of uh, so it went like 21 miles the first day, 24, 28, 50. And then you get a day off of the 50 because some people take like 30 to 40 hours to finish, right? So you start on um, Wednesday, Thursday's a day off, Friday's a full marathon, and then Saturday's like five-mile sprint to the finish at this Genghis Khan memorial thing. Um, So, you know, I was looking at it and I was like, okay, it's just running. Um, It's self-supported, so you had to carry seven days' worth of food sleeping bag, some basic emergency supplies that they mandate, like a a mirror, a whistle, a headlamp, you know, some basic bullshit that you probably will, if you need, you're in big trouble. Um, But bottom line is the backpack weighed about 21 pounds total at the start. And you would think it would get much lighter, but the freeze-dried food is like so light, you know, you might lose like five pounds by the end. But again, not I looked at it like I know that there's a shitload of stuff that I don't know. Because just like Ironman triathlon or marathon, experience counts for like, I don't know, 50 plus percent once you get to the competitive level. Like you just don't know until you know. Think about the first Ironman or the first marathon you've run. Typically in the first marathon, you're not eating enough or drinking enough. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm in a deficit and I can't get out of it. Right? That takes that takes races and experience to, to understand what and how to do it. And the same thing with Ironman. You think you know everything. Again, I went into Ironman thinking, I'm going to destroy these guys. I, 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 No reason to think that. I didn't know how to swim. I never rode a bike. But I was like, I just know I can out-hustle people. And, you know, you get humbled a few times and you figure shit out and you go back to the drawing board. So I knew that there was a high likelihood that this would happen in the Gobi race. But I was still like slightly arrogant and thinking like I can do this so I bought a backpack you know went through three or four of them trying to find the one that worked that didn't like I mean dude I went through chafing on my hips my back my shoulders and neck that you wouldn't even believe until I found a backpack that I thought was working an ultra aspire and uh on the second day I the bat the strap ripped off the bottom of the pack I fell down busted my elbow open real bad unbeknownst to me so as I'm running I think I'm wiping sweat because we're in the desert it's like 2,000 degrees and I'm brushing the sweat off my elbows I'm touching my face I'm covered in blood by the time I finish and my backpack's ripped so I'm holding the strap there were so many things that happened like I said the running was such a small part of this race the food was huge 
sleeping on the ground. I've never run with a backpack. I've never slept in a tent. I'm a big baby. You've never slept on a tent? Never. Never. Beds are amazing, Eric. (laughs) I grew up in the inner city in Boston. Like We didn't go camping. When I got older, my wife teases me all the time because if we go somewhere, I'm like, I'm booking first class tickets. She's like, why do you have to be so fancy? I'm like, I spent my whole life in coach and shit motels. I don't want to do that anymore. If I can't do it the way I want to do it, I'm not trying to be a big shot. I just don't want to do it like that. I'd rather stay home. My house is nicer than that place in that case. I'm, I'm the same way with hotels, Ken. I don't like like wall air conditioners. I'm not interested, dude. It's like my one treat to myself. Like when I go to, to- when I went to Tokyo, I stayed at the Ritz Carlton. Again, I want to, I want to like say in advance, like I'm not trying to be a. Sh- I, I don't, I don't need to show off. I'm not trying to be a braggart. I'm just saying when I go there, I've got so much time and energy invested into this training. I want to be comfortable when I get to the race and and not worry about the hotel being a dump, the beds being awful. So I stayed at the Ritz Carlton for eight days and, and in Boston, I stayed at the Mandarin Oriental. It's like the, my treat to myself. Hey, you worked hard. The, the, all the work is done. The race is just a chance to show off. The race should be the easy part. The, the hard stuff's already been done. So I had never done that. So I get a sleeping bag. I get a sleeping pad and get over to Mongolia. And <laughs> I had a one-man tent. But when we got there, the weather forecast was calling for torrential rain. And I didn't know anything. So I got a one-man tent that I could carry, like in hindsight, on a bike. Other people had these posh, like Mount Everest tents that they were sleeping in. And then there were communal tents that most people were in, like three to five people in a tent. So when I realized what I had done, I was like, oh, my God. So I said to the organizer, hey, my tent poles got bent in, in, in transit is there any chance I can still get into a tent? She's like, yeah, there's a tent over there with three women in it. You can be in that one. I was like, done. So I was like, perfect. Three women, so much better than three guys snoring and being gross. And uh, three of the nicest women in the world, one a total international community. There was a woman from Ireland, uh, Hong Kong, and Philippines. And uh, we had an awesome, we had an awesome arrangement. Everyone like was cool with this setup. And uh, first night we get there. So, I get there. I only know the guy in passing, Scott, from email and phone. We get to Mongolia. I'm like, hey, good to meet you. So I know no one. It's very clicky, much like triathlon or Ironman. Everyone kind of knows each other. So I'm kind of the outsider. And, uh, you know, a couple of them might have known who I was about uh, with regards to marathoning. And I think that, well, I know this because one of the guys, the awesome dude called Killian Ryan from South Africa, an Irish guy, told me after, he's like, yeah, these guys wanted to kill you. They were like, this marathon guy thinks he's going to come here and beat everyone. We're going to get him. We'll show him by day three or four. We're going to destroy him. So I was like, cool. Let's fucking – now I'm angry. And and so the first night we get there, they drive us out to the desert and we sleep in the tent the first night before we start. And it First time ever. First time ever at a, at a tent. And it's pouring. I mean, it's the fucking rain is drilling the tent to the point where I'm like, it's going to blow the tent away. It, it's it's like a monsoon. And, you know, like a 50-year-old man, I've got to wake up three times to pee in the middle of the night. And the girls were telling me, thank God. They were like, oh, yeah, we were in with a German guy. And he would just get naked every day, pee in his water bottle. It would stink. And I'm like, pee in his water bottle? How gross. I had one water bottle that I kept on my chest, like a bike bottle. As soon as I woke up, it was raining that hard. I was like, give me that bottle. 
it was so gross. I'm peeing in the bottle, rinsing it out in the morning, drinking out of it all day. It was like, you just get into this, like, almost like this special forces mentality. And during the days when it would get tough, I would remind myself that there are like real men out there that are doing this. Only someone's trying to kill them. And if they make a mistake, they're going to die. And honestly, that would motivate me to be like, dude, suck it up. No one's going to punch you in the face. No one's going to choke you. Just keep moving. And I, I it, that actually kept me going. So anyway, the first night I'm peeing in the bottle, I'm getting up. I'm, I'm literally like on the verge of tears. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? There's no getting out now. Too many people know I'm doing this, like sponsors, the whole nine yards. And I'm like, oh, what, what the fuck? Me and my big mouth. So we take off the first day and uh, there's four of us leading. And I'm running with an, a British kid who ended up dropping out. And he's, I'm like, oh, what? what what do you do for running? He's like, oh, I was a half marathon. I ran 107. I'm like, oh, for Christ's sakes. This guy's awesome. He's, they're going to kill me. And there's an Israeli special forces guy, like a Mossad agent, and a Swiss mountaineer guy who's real good. So we're legging it, and we get to like 15 of 21 miles, and we just go up the side of like a mountain, like a ski slope. No trail, just like pink flags marking like up a field, but it's super steep. You get to the top and then you traverse a ridgeline, but you're not on the top of the ridgeline. You're on the, on the like downslope. So like no bullshit. If you slip and fall, you might die. And I'm thinking, how did they get insurance for this? Like someone's going to get hurt. The checkpoints are like every six to 10 miles. This isn't like a marathon or an Ironman where they're worried about your well being. This is like, oh, let's see who can survive the craziest course on earth. Ken, you're in Mongolia. There's no such thing as permits, man. Dude, I was like, what do you guys do if someone gets hurt? Like, seriously, like, no bullshit. They'll, I go, do you send a chopper or something? Like, there are very few helicopters in Mongolia. Typically, we'd get them out of here with a camel. And in 2010, a guy <laughs> dropped in the middle of one of the stages and they took him out on a camel and he died. So, okay, r- real quick. How does the refilling of water work? Do you, cause you like, you, you say your pack's 21 pounds at the, at the start. And, and so yep. you've got to carry. That's without water, by the way. Right, right, right. So I, I assumed, right? So are you allowed to refill food every night? No. No. You have okay. to have all your food. They provide the water in the tent. So they provide okay. at night hot water and not cold water, water that's been sitting in the desert in, in giant water bottles. So like everything's warm. There's nothing's cold. Yeah. But they do boil water in kettles with the uh, – they have Mongolian-like volunteers. So – but you had to have – like there were certain requirements. You had to have two and a half liters of water. And I think for the leaders, they were super lax. They would not be like, you got it. Let's make sure you have all the water. Like the first aid station we went through, I came up and I was like, yo, do we have to stop? And they're like, no, because it was cool and it was raining. It, keep in mind, it's raining like you shoot. Everything's wet. Some of the stages you'd cross a river like one mile into the stage. So from the jump, you're running a marathon with soaking wet trail shoes. You're on. soaked. Yeah. What shoes did you wear? I wore um, Hoka. Um, I forget the model, but one of their top trail shoes. One of the two tr- top trail shoes. They were awesome. Hoka sent me a bunch of stuff to try prior to the race through a friend of mine called Aaron Bailey, who works with them. So you had to have two and a half liters capacity of water. But like I said, no one checked it. But my whole shit fell apart when the pack broke. And then I had to get a pack from a, a woman who DNF gave me her pack and it had a different hydration system on it. Dude, I was a mess. So 
you know, I'd get, I'd get there and I'd just take the, the refill bottles they had, hold it up and just chug as much as I could. Then I'd fill at least one full and I had one like small collapsible one that I picked up and lost and found. Um, cause my system sucked in hindsight. I, again, I didn't know anything, but so, so the first day, 21 miles, the two guys, the Israeli and the, and the Swissy, when we got to the mountain, they whipped out their poles. Now I had spoken to a friend called Charlie Engel who won it years ago. And he was like, nah, you don't need poles. You don't need gaiters for your shoes. That's all bullshit. Don't worry about that. So I was like, okay, cool. This guy won. He doesn't need poles. We get to the hill, dude. It's like a black diamond ski slope. And these guys are like hooking it up. Thing. I'm like hands on knees. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to get blown out. Wow, these guys are dropping me. And with a mile to go, and his, an Italian uh, journalist, Filippo Rossi, blows past me. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like the fucking nerd who's just, like, gone too hard, and I'm getting blown out. Like, I'm making all the rookie mistakes. So I finish in fourth, and I can tell that there's, like, a vibe of, like, yeah, we got this guy. No problem. Well, the next day is 28 miles. Yeah, I think it was 28. Yeah, the second day was 28 miles. I fucking blew out the field. I destroyed them. <laughs> I destroyed. I won by like 10 or 15 minutes, but I fell down and my bag broke. My elbows busted open. I mean, I was in hell. I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to run 24 tomorrow and 50 the next day. So long story short, I take the straps. I cut some holes in it. The doctor gave me a scalpel because I couldn't cut it through it with a knife, the straps. So I poke little X's and I take zip ties and I zip tie it all together. Then I tape it all together. And the second day, there's some pictures on my Instagram where we're literally climbing, dude, up a mountain like rocks, like like almost like not sheer straight up, but we're like scaling rocks. And I, I get up there and halfway through the doctors there and, and the cameraman and I'm like, how the fuck did you guys get liability insurance for this? There's some people over here in their 70s. Like if you fall, you're dead. You're dead. And, <laughs> and they just look you at just you and laugh. You keep going back to permits and liability insurance. That's just like your whole process the whole time. You're, you're, you're an agonizing pay. You're like, how do they get the permits for this? It's <laughs> so dangerous. So we Read get up the that. waiver, Ken. Read the waiver. Dude. We get up that, we come down, the Swissy's off the front, right from the jump, he just takes off. So he's way out front, and I'm running with the Israeli guy, really nice guy, David Dudu. And um, we're running, we get up, then we get down just this steep, and we're running, and boom, my pack breaks again. I'm like, oh my God, now I'm thinking, I'm out of this. I'm going to be out of the race. So I take out a knife, I cut a hole in the strap, the like thick part of the strap, and I pull the nylon strap through and I tie a knot and it holds for the rest of that stage. And now we get to like the sand dunes of like five miles of like, just imagine the loosest sandy beach you've ever seen. And at one point there's like, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, it's like 200 yards straight up. I'm bear crawling and it's like I'm going in reverse. And, I, and I'm in second, the Swissies off the front, the, the Israeli guys drop, I can't see him. And I'm like, this can't be right. Like, I can't be doing this. I'm going in reverse. There's no way everyone's going to get up this. Well, like 10 people dropped out right there. And they had a camel on standby to drag people out. And the camel could not get up the hill. So if you were up the hill, you had to come back down so the camel could get you. It was, dude, it was so hard. I, I had to stop, take off my shoes and socks, empty everything out. It was so different than a running race because at times I was like, I sat down, I'm taking my shoes off. I'm thinking, I'm fucking sitting down in the middle of a running race. This is so foreign. And then I'm, you know, a, a support truck comes by. I'm like, yo, you guys got any water? 
And this is this was the hottest stage by far. And they give me a huge bottle of water. I drink the whole thing. I'm soaking myself down. I'm covered in sand. Like, dude, it looked like a Navy SEAL training video. I'm just covered in sand. I'm chafed everywhere. And uh, so I finished. At this point now, I've got like a 12-minute deficit to first. But I'm in second by like 30, 40 minutes. And uh, now we're in, we're camping in the sand dunes. As soon as we get there, huge gust of wind comes, takes like three or four tents, throws them into the desert. I'm like... I have some funny videos where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? This is adventure racing. I'm like, this is like death defying. Tents are flying around. There's fucking fire burning. There's burning embers flying all through the air. Uh, there's trucks stuck in the sand. It, dude, it was, it was mayhem. I'm like, I, I don't, as an organizer, I don't know who would even want to put on this chaos. It was so unpredictable. Then it starts pissing down rain again. Then it starts lightning. And they had to keep these buses on standby in case they had to evacuate us in like in the event of lightning. So like everyone get to the buses quick. So we're all sitting on the buses for an hour while lightning goes through. Dude, it was fucking crazy. Uh, and then the next day is the 50 mile stage. And like I said, the first mile you're right through a river waist deep. So you're soaked and you've got 50 miles to go. So, um, I'm listening to music in one headphone just to keep my mind busy. And it's me, the Swissy and the Israeli again off the front. And, uh, I don't know why I was listening to music. I was excited around 12, 15 miles. And I run over to the Israeli guy and I'm like, yo, dude, he's like, what's up? I'm like, dude, did I tell you? I fucking never get tired. I never get, I could do this all day. I don't know what, like I usually wouldn't do something like this, but like within a mile, he was gone. He just started walking. So now it's just me and the Swiss guy and he's stoic. He's just like not saying anything. We're friendly, but we're not saying anything. And we're helping each other. Like, if I'm going slow on the hill, he's going slow. If, I, if I'm if i like, shit, I'm getting low on water, he'd be like, here, I have some extra. So we're helping each other. But we're still pushing. So we're walking the steep uphills, which is all you can do. And then we're drilling the downhills and we're running the flats. So we get to like 37 miles. There's one more aid station. We go through one checkpoint and they had Coke there. So I'm drinking like six gallons of Coke. He's having some, but it clearly doesn't agree with him. So around... I want to say like 40 miles, three miles to go before the next checkpoint. By the way, they're like, yeah, the next checkpoint's like seven miles, but it's nine. So you're thinking like, oh, this is going to be any minute. And it's just, oh my God, there's another hill. Like, what are they doing? So now we're both getting pissed. And now he starts to fall apart. And he's like, I got to walk some more on the flats. I'm like, all right. I'm not like, at this point now, racing is is the second thought. We're just kind of in it together. And it's like my whole mentality has changed from wanting to step on his neck to now I'm like, all right, let's let's work together. Let me just help him get there. 12 minutes, it is what it is. So then he's like, I got to sit down. I'm like, dude, you can't fucking sit down. We're in the desert. Like, you, you got to keep moving. Let's get to the next station. So he sits down. I'm covering him to, like, provide shade. I have water. I'm spraying water on him. I'm giving him water. I'm like, dude, we got to keep moving. Like, at this point, I'm giving him a pep talk to stay alive. I'm like, brother, come on, man. You got a lot of shit to get home to. Don't sit here. Let's just get to the next one. And let's Let's work. And he's like, all right, I'm trying. And I say, let me carry your pack. He wouldn't let me carry his pack. So eventually, thank God, a support truck comes by. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you guys doing, man? Someone's going to die out here. It's like 200 degrees. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The aid stations are nine miles apart. Like, you can only carry so much water. So anyway, they take him and they're like, we got him. Go. And he's like, go, go, go. He had been telling me to go the whole time. But I was like, dude, I'm not, I can't leave you here alone. So he says, go, dude, I ran my fastest seven miles from 43 to 50. I was legging it. Even even like looking at the splits, my wife was like, what the hell happened? You were moving like a turtle. And then all of a sudden you like turned on the jets. 
But, uh, I, you know, at least I felt good about the fact that I tried to help him, but I also felt good about the fact that now I had like a 90 minute lead on everyone and it was over. We had a right. marathon the next, the next day with a day of rest. And I was like, it's over. There's no way. So, so that brings up kind of two interesting points. One, um, you hear kind of across adventure racings, like from the Barclay, right? The documentaries you watch every year, you hear about how people pair up or they work together for as long as they possibly can, right? Because there, there is that collective misery that you're all in and you're all trying to essentially achieve the same goal, right? And then the second component of it is don't piss Ken Ride out off because when you get pissed <laughs> off, like <laughs> you are going to step on some throats. And I'm going to win or die trying. And I mean, just it, it speaks to, right, just that mentality shift of being able to really set super high goals for yourself and being able to achieve them, right? And some of that motivation sometimes, you know, you manage to take occasionally negative energy, right? Like being angry for whatever reason, right? And you're able to have that really positive outlet of, you know what, like I am going to do this and this is how. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize though, when you're angry, not to let that make you make stupid decisions. My youngest son is, uh, I have four kids. They all signed up for jujitsu. Only one stuck with it. I'm not an irrational mental sports dad who thinks his kids are superstars, but my youngest kid who's seven is legitimately a like very competitive jujitsu player. And you know, when they're, it's so much fun to take them into coaching because they're so young, they don't know anything about right. mentality, about attitude. And he's so cool and calm. He's got his, he's at his insistence, got his head shaved, bald on both sides with a mohawk. He's just like that kid who, when you come in, you're like, oh, this fucking punk. I hope my kid's not matched up with him. He's super kind and nice. But when it comes time to roll and spar, he's just a killer. He's so, he's just innately tough. And like I said, I have four, one of them got it and three didn't. And but one of the things that we talk about all the time is he gets very angry and frustrated. Sometimes he'll get in the car after training and he'll start crying when we get in the car. And he'll be like, the guy in the first 10 minutes, the guy hurt my arm when he like, he had my arm pinched and he knew he did it. And I would just like, in my mind, I'm like, I can't believe he held in the tears for an hour until he got in the car. But we had this talk the other day about getting angry. I said, dude, never, ever get angry. Because when you get angry, you do things that aren't smart. You have to just absorb those feelings and channel that in a way that's like, okay, be very conscious of the fact that I'm not doing this out of anger. You can be angry, but don't make decisions based on your emotions. Your emotions are fleeting the reality is all that matters. You have to recognize and separate the difference between emotions and like reality. Your emotions tell you all the time, oh shit, I'm scared. You're on like a high diving board at a country club and you're like, holy shit, this is high. You have to like block that out and be like, all right, no one's going to die jumping off the diving board. But these are like, it's like the difference between the coward and the hero is everybody feels the same exact emotions. It's just how do you react under that duress? Do you react cool and calm and you see the best athletes like a Tom Brady, you're in the Super Bowl. Like, how do you stay so cool and keep your mind functioning and watching everything that's going on and reading the defense? That's like 
something that I think that that's almost more important than your physical capabilities is your emotional well-being and ability to make decisions under duress, especially in a sport like triathlon, right? It's easy for a bike rider to go by you on the bike at like, you know, fucking blow past you 10 miles in. You can go with that guy or you can know that, okay, I can run 40 minutes faster than this dude and he's a superstar bike rider. I'm not going to – this is irrational. Right, you know that someone's pushing wants. There's no way anyone in the sport can do that. And if they can, I can't race with them. I would talk to Norman Stadler about this, and I was like, "What would you do if you were pushing crazy watts and someone went past you like a bat out of hell?" He's like, "Look, at some point you have to realize I can't race that guy. If that's what that guy has, doesn't seem normal, but I can't stay with that. And nine times out of ten, they're coming back." So it's the same thing with fighting or or running. It's like you have to know what your capabilities are and what you can respond to and what you can't. And there's also another big difference between trying to finish and be competitive versus trying to win. Sometimes if you're trying to win and someone goes by you that you know can run, you have to stay with them because if you give them 20 minutes on the bike, you ain't catching them even if they're having a bad day. So there's a lot of things that go into it and controlling your emotions is a huge part of any sport, especially one that's long like a triathlon or a marathon. Ken, talk talk to us a little bit about your rest day. <laughs> Just kind of getting back to the Colby March and then and then wrapping that up. But so, what did you guys do on your rest day? Did it rain? Did oh, it? Oh, at Colby, it- yeah, it, it rained a little bit, but it didn't even matter. It was so hot there. Anytime it rained, it was a nice excuse to like lay my clothes out and let them get w- washed off because they didn't want you using the water to um, take showers or wash your clothes because it, it wasn't it wasn't limited. But they were also like, listen, don't waste the water on. We don't want you washing your clothes and shit, but it's kind of like they give you all these rules, but they don't really enforce them. So it's like the people that are unafraid to beg for forgiveness versus ask for permission kind of get away with a lot of shit. And, you know, I don't want to be a rule breaker, but at the same time, I'm like, guys, uh, seven days, same clothes. So like a few days we were next to a river. So I'd take them in the river. I'd wash them out. I had these little soap strip things that I took with me and little like towelettes that when you add water, they get big camping. People will know all this shit exists. All of this was new to me. So I had these little things. I'd like go behind the tent and dude, there was no like humility. Like people were just naked everywhere. Like people were just handling their business. So I just go behind the tent, pull my pants down, wash everything as quickly as I could try to every day and rinse my clothes out. The problem is if it was raining, dry in the clothes so some days they'd be wet in the morning but like i said there were so many river crossings it really didn't matter you were wet all the time but here's the other thing is because i run so much my feet were like yeah okay i got a couple little blisters here and there but nothing crazy at one point after the 50 mile my feet got so swollen i was like holy shit am i doing damage to my feet and they were just completely numb but dude, some people's feet, man, it looked like they walked on fucking hot coals. There was no skin left on the bottom. I, I was looking at him like, have you never run? This is like a person who like never ran ever and just ran 26 miles in brand new shoes. I mean, feet were destroyed. To their credit, man, so many people were out there on like broken, look, look like they had broken ankles, no skin on their feet, and they were walking every day and finished. I mean, there was some real resilience out there a real sense of camaraderie how many people in total participated in the event i think 120 people started and maybe like 90 finished wow that's impressive maybe more i would think it was that high of a dude there was a japanese kid who 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 did the entire race in those wooden japanese flip-flops with a piece of wood that stuck like two he had an eggplant suit on and he was a chef and eggplant, I guess, in Japanese is good luck. I go, you do know what an 
eggplant emoji in U.S. stands for, right? And he was like, ah, yeah, I know, I know. It was so funny. All right, so your so your last day, you went, yeah. you you won. What was it like at the finish line? Did they like like tell me about like the food that you ate? Because obviously, like, I mean, did they feed you at that point? Yeah. Well, the next to the last day was an interesting day because it was a full marathon, and we start out and it's pissing down rain i got some awesome videos of like stampeding horses running in front of us like i'm talking like arm's length where i'm like holy shit if these things make a turn we're gonna get stampeded and me and the swiss kid it just blow out blow everyone off the front we're just steamrolling and we go across like a bunch of planes and then we go up through some crazy mountains looked exactly like switzerland like through a valley up and over a mountain range and then down we're together the whole time we're walking up and then on the technical descent he's super super proficient on the uh, ascents and descents so he just takes off and like drops me puts like a maybe a minute on me runs right through the aid station i'm like oh this son of a bitch we've been working together he was trying to catch fourth he was down like 40 minutes but i was like oh hell no dude we had a drag race we ran like i want to say a 330 or a 340 for a marathon with a mountain crossing and not one single bit on trails or roads all through like pastures and uh and that final thing was a river crossing like a hundred yards across waist deep like rushing water with a rope to hold on but it was so gratifying finishing so he beat me by like a minute and minute 20 maybe but now i had like 90 minutes on second and he was 17 minutes out of fourth but um yeah and then the last day was five miles and i was like dude i'm totally drained the last thing i want to do is run hard so I'm warming up like I'm going to do a 10K race and people are hanging out. Everyone's having fun. And my my friend Killian, the uh, Irish guy, is like, yo, you're going to go all out on this? You go walk and win. I'm like, kind of like the Tour of France. I'm like, I feel like I have to honor the leader's jersey by going as hard as I can. Like I can't – I can't. no one – no, I can't justify in my mind. Are you shadow boxing at the start, man? I always do. I know. I, know. I, I always started do. doing it gets that, in the head. Way. It gets in their head. Well, mm-hmm. there's a difference between shadow boxing and when someone shadow boxing, you're like, holy shit, that guy actually looks like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And I was like, I can't justify giving anyone a free pass. You know, when Lance let, um, who did he let win? Pantani. And the guy was like pissed when Lance said he let him win on a mountain stage when Lance had the yellow jersey. I forget which stage it was, but there was something like that. And I was like, I have to give my best effort. We start running, dude, and my heart rate goes through the roof because I haven't run fast since we started. And now it's only like five miles and it's up and over a little mount, little hill. I mean, a big hill and then down and then through the village and then into this monastery. And when we get down into the village, the Swiss guy falls off and I just put the hammer down and just run as fast as I can. Um, I think I ran like, I mean, it wasn't in hindsight blazingly fast, like seven minute miles. I think I ran or maybe just under something like that. Like I think I ran 3130 and, uh, you just come into this beautiful monastery and there's monks and it's like just so much history. And it's the, the country was absolutely stunning. It, it looked nothing like what I expected. It was absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Mountains, sand dunes, desert, green pastures, tons of like sheep, cows, horses, uh, huge eagles. And uh, I come into the monastery leading the way. There's a huge crowd there, music. It was euphoric, man. I was like very, it was very emotional for me just because I was like, I can't believe I did this. Like 
I sent a text to my friend, Rich Roll, and I was like, yo, I'm thinking about doing this Gobi race. You know, what do you know? And he's like, dude, be careful. That race has claimed many an, af- many an ultra athlete. Someone actually died there. I told him this after the fact. I said, all I heard was, be careful. This race is too hard for you, and you might get hurt at this. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, fuck. It, I swear, it lit a fire under my ass. And that's, when he sent that text, that's when I signed up. And another friend of mine called James Davies, who runs, uh, is the CEO at Deutsche in New York and has done a bunch of ultra races. He had said to me, like, dude, if you could be in the top five in that race, that would be so impressive. And I remember saying to him, like, top five, dude, if I don't fucking win, I'll be so pissed. And he's like, dude, you got to like meet your expectations. And I was like, oh, really? I just like, I don't know. I know it sounds irrational to most people, but in my mind, I was like, how dare you say I can't do this? And that shit fueled me. I thought about it every single day. I'm like, I'm going to show these fucking guys. And so when I finished, it was all those emotions. And then I had, you know, missing my kids terribly. All I could think about was my kids. I'm like, if I'm going to spend a week away from my children and my wife, like the least I can do is empty the tank and try to get a win. So on one hand, I'm like, yeah, of course I won. And on the other hand, I'm like, I can't fucking believe I won this just because there was so many unknowns and it was... It was awesome. It was the best feeling I've ever had from winning anything. That that literally ranks number one for you. Oh, by miles. Wow. Not, nothing else is even close because yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. It was like completely out of my comfort zone. Like the whole sleeping in the tent thing, that might have been the hardest part. Dude, the night after the 50-mile stage, I was taking caffeinated um, noon hydration tablet things just because I picked them up from someone who dropped out. I had so much caffeine, I slept two hours the whole night. The next night, I slept three hours. I couldn't get my sleep right. It it was, you know, I'd wake up like, there's no way I can finish. I've only slept five hours in two days, and I've been running like myself ragged. I'm cut everywhere. My body is all fucked up. I've got burn marks all over. I had these huge tape strips on my uh, shoulders and around my waist where the backpack was burning the shit out of me from chafing. So are you going to do it again? You're going to go down? No, no. hell no. <laughs> I told them if they paid me a hundred grand, I wouldn't do it. Can talk to us a little bit about your prior work in the financial markets. Cause one of the things that, that I've always found fascinating about you as an individual and something that I've, I've, I've grown to, to, to respect quite a bit is, is how you've been able to turn your passion in sports into what you do for a business. And I think a lot of that probably started back from the history of you and the financial markets. Um, and yeah. so what I kind of want to talk about is, is, is I want to get the readers that, that don't know you a little bit of background about your work when you left and, and how that has affected how you do business now. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think that's an important piece of this puzzle, or at least important part of my story. When I um, graduated from college, I got a job immediately in pharmaceutical sales. And I specifically picked the route in New York City. Now, keep in mind in that at that time in like 96, I was making like 36 grand. My rent alone took up like 90% of my take home pay. I had some student loans. I knew going there, I'm like, I can't afford to do this. But I had some credit cards. And I, to this day, I don't know why I'm not like a super risky person. But I knew that I didn't have the money to do this. But I thought, I'll figure it out. What's the worst thing that can happen? 
I was living in a fifth story walk up doing this job. I fucking hated this job. And there was no accountability. You know, you're on your, you're basically like, it's the old, it was the like first version I ever experienced of work from home. You would check in with a phone on a pay phone back in those days. We didn't even have cell phones and you'd go see doctors all day and get signatures, drop off samples. It was the biggest bullshit under the sun. And I was terrible. I was terrible at it, but I had a few good, I realized quickly, I had a few good relationships with doctors that made up the majority of the sales quotas. So when I tell you I'd work like an hour a day, that would be a stress stretch. It was, but but it only lasted like six months. And I was working out at a gym in New York called the, um, the vertical club. It was like, in hindsight, it was like this flashy neon 1980 style gym, but it was like the hot gym on the upper East side. And I saw these young guys working in finance and I was literally like, these guys are dopes. They're making crazy money working in finance. I got to get in on this. And I, it's crazy story. I was playing in a men's hockey league in Chelsea Piers and a, um, and a dude that was on my team was a French Canadian kid called Mike Peltier. And he was working on a, um, uh, a, a commodities brokerage desk. They were brokering trades between institutions. So they were like institutional brokers. So they were doing these big ticket trades, making huge money. And he was like, hey, we need an assistant. Do you want to come and do this? And I was like, I dropped everything. I'm like, I'm in. And I was, let's say I was making 40 grand then. Within... This is like, again, in 97, maybe 98, you know, it wasn't like this warm and fuzzy environment we have now in, in office settings where like HR is ever present. This was like the jungle. It was like a locker room. There was hazing. But I mean, I'm boxing for the New York Athletic Club. I played hockey. Like I wasn't a, a pushover by any means. But these guys were hazing me mercilessly. And I was like, motherfucker, I don't get bullied. I just can't let let someone treat me like this. And at one point, it just kept growing and growing. A guy threw a dry eraser at me one day. And I just fucking slapped him so hard in the face, almost like knocked him out. And they were like, long story short, they were like, you're fired. And this is how naive I was. I didn't even know that there were other people doing what we did. I didn't know we had competitors. And within a day, I get a call from the, the, the head trader at Enron, which at the time was like the Gordon Gecko of the market. They were like a behemoth. And this guy was the top guy. Awesome guy called Darren Lovdell, unfortunately passed away. He was in a wheelchair. He was paralyzed in high school in a, in a um, car accident and then went to Harvard. Now he's the head trader. He hears what happens. He calls me and says, hey, I got a job. Call this guy. They're going to hire you. There was another trading desk that wasn't quite as good as the one I was on but they were trying to get better. And now the top dog is telling them, hire this guy to be my broker. So I go over there, dude, they were like, can you start? I get fired on a Thursday. They're like, can you start on a Monday? And uh, I was like, yeah, wh- what about compensation? They're like, yeah, 80 grand. I was like, <laughs> you d- I thought I would, I just got fired from a 40 grand job. Now you're paying me 80 grand. So I get in there and now I'm covering this guy and he's calling me like, buy this, sell that. These guys had never seen this kind of order flow before. So they're like, holy sh! everyone's getting rich. They're all, cause everyone's making money on the trades. Right. And within two, three months, they're like, Hey, your new salary is 125 grand. To me, it was like, I just got a $5 million raise. I mean, if you're making 40 grand and someone then gives you $125,000 salary, it's astronomical. And I'm getting like huge bonuses every quarter, tens of thousands of dollars. Which again, not to be a bracket, I'm just giving you the story of how it happened. And very quickly after that, the guy who hired me there at that at that firm, who was the CEO, he went to Kenner Fitzgerald. Um, they had a commodities division. He was like, "Hey, come and run that electricity trading for me at Kenner. 
And I was like, I have a contract here. You know, I can't leave. It was like sports teams. Like you had a contract, two-year contract. When it's up, you're a free agent. You can go to another competitor. It was very, very competitive. There were people making millions of dollars. And um, I was like, I have a contract. And he's like, okay, we're going to send you to London to set up our European trading desk. And then when that, when your contract expires, then you come back to New York. I was like, done. I would definitely want to live in London as an expat. They paid my rent. I lived like down the street from Madonna. I had like a three-story muse house. I had a frigging garage in my house. Imagine in New York City having a townhouse with a garage. It was like something out of a movie. I'm flying back and forth on the Concorde from New York to London. It, it was it, it was insane. It was like a movie. And um, while I'm there, 9-11 happens, which I would have been working on the top floor of the World Trade Center. All the people I worked with, was going to work with, all died, every single one of them. Um, it was the most like traumatic thing ever. So after that, I ended up staying in London for another year or so, came back to New York and took over. And at that same time, Enron went bust, the whole thing blew up. And they asked me to come back and take over the credit derivative business, which was super complex fixed income credit correlation, like really complex financial instruments that ended up causing a financial crisis in uh, around 2008. So they were like, hey, this is like 2003 or four. And they were like, take over this business. And I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about, I didn't even know anything about commodities. What do I know about credit? And, um, you know, it was like one of those things where you just fake it till you make it. And, and so I, after electricity blew up with Enron, I had to like basically reinvent myself. They like cut my salary to like a hundred grand. It was cra- It was so merciless. It was just like, and then I just started like jamming and thank God I hooked up with a couple of really cool clients and things started to accelerate quickly. And, um, I was off to the races doing better than I was in commodities. And, uh, the whole time knowing that being an institutional broker is an excellent job and you can make money, but it's not really, a, for me, it wasn't like a real career. Like there wasn't a lot, lot of longevity. You would live and die with your relationships. Two of your top customers get moved to a different division or they move on and you're like out of business. Like the other guys just take over. And it was so ruthless. The pe- There was nothing nice going on there. There was no sense of camaraderie. I mean, I had some good friends there, but it was ruthless. And, um, I, I, so at some point a friend of mine went to a bank and offered me a job to come run sales on this, at a bank trading desk, which was like a step up in the food chain. If like allocators, like the, the Black Rocks, PIMCOs, sovereign wealth funds are the top of the food chain, like the banks in the middle and then the interdealer brokers are on the bottom. That has nothing to do with compensation. It might actually be flipped, but in terms of prestige and longevity and career path, that's the pecking order. So now I had a chance to get onto a bank trading desk without going through the analyst program, without going to having an MBA or a CFA. It was like too good to be true, but I took like, I don't know, 70% pay cut to do it because I figured in, in, in terms of my long-term career prospects, this would be a better decision. So I did that and within... 12 months, the financial crisis hits and boom, we're all shit out of luck. Basically, we're all about to get fired. I go back to like the broker side doing brokering uh, corporate bond trades and then luckily link up with Credit Agricole selling fixed income on another bank desk, which was miraculous that someone was willing to give me a chance. I mean, people would laugh me out of interviews from my resume, sociology degree from Framingham State. A bunch of brokering experience meant nothing. There wasn't like nothing on there said like academic or professional pedigree. It was just like, 
do you believe in this dude as a hustler and can survive? And to his credit, this dude, Andy Schaefer at Credit Agricole was like, I, I went to the interview I had on Shamrock Cufflinks and, uh, and a Rolex watch. And he said, what says more about you, the, the cufflinks or the watch? I said, well, the watch says that I'm insecure and I want you to know that I've had some success and was able to spend a lot of money on a watch. And the cufflinks tell you a little bit about where I'm from. So I probably identify more with the cufflinks and the watch can be equally a source of embarrassment and pride. Although I do love the watch, I recognize that it stems from deep insecurity and a need to, to validate myself to others. And he's like, can you start Monday? And they were interviewed like 20 people. And the other people in the business were like, what the fuck? We didn't even have a say in this. What about these other guys that have worked? At- this guy worked at Goldman Sachs. He's like, I don't care. This kid will out hustle anyone. And dude, I, for two years, I was like one of the top paid sales guys there, top producers. I just hustled. I had good relationships. And like I said, I know I'm not good at a lot of things, but when it comes to being interesting and building relationships and rapport with, with customers that I really liked, I was good. And at the, by the same token, the people that didn't like me really didn't like me. <laughs> you know, I was, I realized I could be polarizing, but, uh, so I had a good run there and then. <clears throat> Eventually, I joined a tech startup with my friend, Mark Cuchinard, and I, we were basically doing an electronic version of what I was doing. And they said, I said, I'll, do, I'll come and run sales, but I want to go to the West Coast and cover like the uh, PIMCO, the Western Asset Management, all the West Coast customers. And I want to live in L.A. just because I want to live in L.A. We had just had our fourth child. We, this was in 2015. In 2010, we adopted my daughter from Ethiopia and then subsequently had three biological boys. So I have four kids. So I have four young kids. The new one is just born. We sell our house, move to LA, which is outrageously expensive. We're living in this crazy house we can't afford in the, in the Pacific Palisades at a new job that probably isn't going to work. In hindsight, I can't believe I did it. But you know that expression, like if you're waiting for the timing to be just right, you're going to be waiting forever. It's never going to be right. You have to make the time right. And I don't want to sound like hyperbolic or or cliche, but I just decided, fuck it. I only have one life. If I don't do this right now, I may never do this. Just like moving to London. It's like the best experiences I've ever had in my life were while I was living in London. Yes, I made a lot of money, but I couldn't tell you what I spent it all on. But I can tell you every single thing that I did, like renting a house in Verbier, Switzerland for a ski season, St. Jean Cap Ferrat in the summer for a South of France in the summer. Like it was just mesmerizing. So we moved to LA. I don't sleep for like six months because I'm afraid I'm going to go broke. I've got four little babies and my wife is just blind faith in me trusting that it's going to work. And um, sure enough, the electronic business doesn't work. And I have been riding everything good in my life has come from endurance sports, everything. I'm riding my bike in the Pacific Palisades, which is the most epic training place in the world. Malibu Pacific Palisades, the most epic bike training place in the world. I don't care what you, anyone else says. I've been to Europe. I've been to a bunch of places to train. If you want to be like in touch with society and not off the grid and train in world-class like conditions, I mean, there's a reason Chris Froome and uh, Garrett Thomas and Cam Worf live and train there in the off-season. It is insane. You can get mountains. You can get on the beach and do time trialing. It, it was just crazy. And so I was riding my bike a lot. And uh, I was riding with a guy in my neighborhood who owns an asset management firm <clears throat> that was like right on the cusp of being big, but like struggling to survive. And uh, he, not necessarily struggling to survive, but they weren't like killing it, but they were right on the cusp. 
And I convinced him to hire me as the head of business development, bring, raising capital for him to manage from institutional allocators like sovereign wealth funds, pensions, endowments. And um, to his credit, he was like, listen, we're friends, man. You don't have any experience. Like if this doesn't work, it's going to be a nightmare. And I said, listen, no one has experience until they do it. And I'll do it for free for three months. And if it doesn't work, we're both going to know. If I can't get anything done in three months, he's like, dude, it takes a year sometimes to get people in the door. I said, we'll know in three months. After like three weeks, he was like, this is working. Let's do it. You're hired. And we went from, let's say, $2 billion in assets under management to $5 billion in two years. I raised their first three discretionary funds for people in finance. They'll appreciate this. Like raising a discretionary fund for a first-time manager is super hard. You've got to get institutions like a pension fund, an endowment, uh, a foundation to give you tens of millions of dollars when you haven't done this before and take a bet on you and then pay you, you know, huge fees. So we raised a $35 million fund from some super prominent um, allocators and uh, doubled the money in like 26 months. And then we raised the second fund. And at some point to my buddy, Jack McDowell's credit, who was the founder and CIO there, he's like, you're wasting your time here, Ken. You should be doing this on your own and living the life you want. He's like, you could do this as a freelance placement agent. Again, I'm so naive with everything. I didn't even know this job existed. And I hooked up with a guy named David Sinclair in Boston who wrote a book called Lifespan about longevity and um, anti-aging um, practices and therapeutics and um, became like a huge bestseller. And he was starting a company called Life Biosciences and, and basically hired me on a handshake to raise some money for him. And we raised $50 million uh, from a bunch of like world-class allocators. And from there, it was like, I'd get calls now every week of people asking me to help them, but it's such a huge commitment. It's like, it sounds crazy, but I have the luxury now of saying yes or no. Yes to only the ones that I know or I believe strongly that we can succeed at and saying no to the ones that I think are long shots, but it's an incredible responsibility because it's like taking a full-time job there. Cause it's like, it's super hard to do, which is why people would pay someone else to help them. Um, but also a huge responsibility because if you put people into these investments and they don't work out, that's a very hard call to make to someone to tell them, ah, dude, we lost that. We lost our money on that one, which luckily has only happened once out of like 10 or 20 deals so far knock on wood. But uh, so that's what I've been doing is doing that as a freelancer. And then, like I said, the running and the endurance sports has been like the greatest gift ever. Like I, it's like the universe rewarded me for just working hard and believing in myself. It was never my goal to make noise as a runner. You know, I, I've said this before in previous interviews, I was like, I'm sorry if I'm rambling, feel free to jump in at any point. You're good, man. You're being yourself. Okay. We like it. All right. I was uh, I was an active drug uh, drug addict for about ten years in the time when I went to London and then came back from London, um, taking opioids on a daily basis, twenty four seven, just living a constantly high on on drugs. It's kind of like um, you know you get to the point where you're taking drugs no longer to get high, but just to avoid being sick. And you know when someone is going through withdrawals from opioids or heroin, the, the withdrawals are so severe. It's like I tell people it's like having the worst flu you've ever had in your life. It comes on instantly and it's going to last for about 10 days, but you can stop it whenever you want by just taking some more. So you get to the point where you're just maintaining and every week, it's like what I said earlier, as soon as the timing is right, I'm going to do this. So you're like, oh, as soon as I get, when I go on vacation, I'm just going to do the withdrawals. Then you get on vacation. You're like, fuck this. I'm ruining an entire vacation. I'll do it when I get back and do it while I'm in work. And it just never 
the right time. And, and I had gone through it several times and then you get off and then you're like, I can go, I can just have like one drink or I can get high just one day. And that never works. And then eventually right before we had, we adopted my daughter, I just like went through it again. It was like, I'm done with this. And, uh, that was the end. But man, I, I tell people when you see someone that's gone through opioid addiction and come out on the other side, it's as shocking to me as when you see someone who's a huge fatso and then you see them and they're ripped and they got abs and you're like, holy shit, dude, you did it. That to me is how rare and hard this is. The amount of people I know that have died or gone to prison from their addiction to these drugs, they're so addictive. And uh, look, I make no excuses. I, I, I'm filled with like self-loathing at what I've done to myself. It changed me forever. I used to be such a uh, happy positive dude and now i struggle with dark thoughts all the time and the only thing that has ever kept me grounded and and on like the right path has been running it's just my commitment to myself and so when i started running the 10 miles a day so i was doing triathlon and by the time we were in la and i had all the kids i was like i don't have time to do this all the time like i i just it's selfish i can't do a five-hour ride on saturday and the only way i can be competitive the way i want to be competitive is to flog myself on the weekends and just, you know, put in more training than everyone else. So I was just like, I, I just can't do it. So maybe I'll just try running. So I was just running 10 miles a, a day with no real goals. I'd enter races. I kept getting faster. And then probably in 18 or 19, I was like, damn, I bet I could run a 230 marathon if I really try. And I ran LA in 240 in like March. That December, I ran 233 in Tucson. And then a year or so later, I ran 228 in Sacramento. And then I decided I'll run all the major marathons, see if I can win my age group when I turned 50. And I, um, I won three and got second in three. So that's kind of how the running came about. I, I think one of the things that's important here, right, is like you, I think a lot of times people try to, you know, get this idea of quote unquote balance when it comes to triathlon and everything else, right? Like, I took four years completely away from triathlon. Like I'm just trying to come back right now. And part of that is because, you know, having young kids and like recognizing that your priorities shift a little bit and you want to be present, but you also still want to be active and true to yourself. And it's like, you have to find those things that, and those outlets that really work super well for you. And so for you, like you couldn't, like in triathlon, like you were what nine hour, ten hour guy, like you you were quick. Uh, I did, yeah, I did in Wisconsin in like uh, fifteen. I came in sixth or seventh overall, nine thirty six, and then I went to Kona, did nine thirty nine. Which for me that was super happy, but I always knew I could go under nine. I just like ran out of time. But part of that right is recognizing, like, okay. I could do those things, but I have other things that are really important in my life. Yes, and it's exactly. okay to focus on those other things, right? Like, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's uh, Brad Stolberg has said, you know, basically like balance isn't actually a thing you can actually achieve. Like there's no such yeah. thing. It's like you're going to have focus stuff and that focus is really important. And, you know, like you and I have both made that, choice where we're going to pivot and focus on something else for a little while and that's okay and that's really yep. cool um and so you know it brings up like having four kids right and 
you're also super successful with your career. Like, how do you find the time to also kind of like carve out for your running and to be able to do some of the adventures that you go on? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think that this is like, if there's one takeaway from this whole interview, I think this would be it is like, you have to exercise and take care of yourself like your life depends on it, because it does. And this the running initially, I think was an inconvenience for my wife and others, like, until I found the right cadence in the in the right, uh, I, I hesitate to say balance, but let's say balance of like, what's convenient for everyone else. So now I get to the point where I wake up in the morning, have some coffee, handle some business on the computer. Sometimes I get a, if I have something to do at eight o'clock, I'll get up at four to run if I have to. So I always never, ever miss running in the morning ever, you know, unless there's like a 5am flight or something crazy, in which case I have to adjust and amend. But typically I'll get up, do a little work on the computer and then run around eight or 9am and I'll take calls while I'm running unless I'm doing a workout. And Like I said, the running used to be somewhat of an inconvenience, but now it fits with everyone else's schedule because I've structured it this way. But it's also now, especially after the Gobi race, has become a huge source of pride for my wife and my children. My wife's never posted anything about my running on her Facebook or Instagram. She's just not that type of person. We're very, um, I don't know, reserved. She's the last thing she would be considered as a braggart. But she posted a beautiful thing about me, like, uh, you know, talking about what I just did in the Gobi Desert. And, uh, you know, I think that that just speaks to the pride that they've, that they, that the whole family got from, you know, what I was able to accomplish there. And, um, yeah, the, the attention since that Gobi race has been just incredible. And, and I think my children have really enjoyed it. And, you know, so it's gone from this thing that was sometimes an inconvenience to now a huge source of pride. And, it's provided inspiration for the children. Like they've really like latched onto this and they're like, dad, way to go. I'm so, we're so proud of you. Like there were signs all over the house and I've won a lot of races in the past and done some like cool shit, but never got the kind of reception or attention that I've received for this, um, for that Gobi race. So, you know, finding the right balance and setting your priorities. Like to me, it has to get done. If I don't do it, I'm not the best version of myself, which even the best version of myself sometimes isn't great. But to give my best, I have to like make sure that I've taken care of something for myself. And at the end of the day, the running that I do an average of 10 miles a day, let's say on the long end, it's an hour and 20 minutes, but it's typically an hour and 10 to an hour and 15 minutes. And we're done. And you think about what other people do, uh, you know, and then I'll lift weights for like 30, 40 minutes before dinner, but that's con- not inconveniencing anyone while my wife is doing her thing. I'll just slip down there and bang out some weights just to keep my like <laughs> body from getting too skinny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 that's just my priority. It just works for me, but you know. And I think, you know, also talking about how the kids really kind of got into it this time. Right. Like part of that is as, you know, your kids grow up and they start doing their own things, right? Like they start to recognize the accomplishments that others might have and might be inspired by it. Right. Like, so my daughter, you know, she's ski races, she swims, but she also like, she recognizes triathlon now. Like she's been going to it since she was, you know, like fit in my arm, but like, it's really kind of this year where she's starting to get some of it, where it clicks together of, Oh my God, like this is a big thing. This is something to be interested in. And she's, you know, done 
a sprint track, like a youth try the last couple of years. Right. So it's, it's cool to see it through their lens because it also kind of brings yourself back to it. And it's like, Oh, I've got this opportunity um, to be able to share something like this and keep them included in it. Yeah, for sure. One of the other big things that's come of this though, with all the endurance stuff is um, I was approached last November by a huge production company called wheelhouse uh, productions. They produce uh, alone, uh, duck dynasty pawn stars and they've got some incredible like tv show concepts that we're in development with with some networks and uh super exciting as soon as hopefully one of these things get gets the green light like i could theoretically be hosting a um network primetime network tv show and that like my kids are just i mean i think they're more excited about that possibility than i am i mean i'm super excited like the idea of you know getting to do something that i actually like doing and like paid to be myself is like almost too good to be true. But it's kind of like what I said earlier is that if you're waiting around for things to be right and the stars to align, that's never going to happen. At some point you have to force the alignment and you have to put yourself in a position to sink or swim. And it's very uncomfortable and there's no easy way around it. And things could go sideways for me at any point, but I believe in myself and I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees and be slave to corporation or a paycheck and that that isn't right for everyone i know that and sometimes i question whether it's right for me but when i look back if i died tomorrow i'd be like man i've had an interesting fun-filled life i've seen a lot of stuff and done a lot of cool things and yes it would be nice to be uh you know have a gazillion dollars in the bank but you know i have what most uh super wealthy people don't have and that's enough I have enough for what I need and I, and, and most importantly, I have a house filled with love and kids that are like really nice kids and they're nice to other people and we love each other. And, um, that's something that, you know, when I was a child, that's all I wanted was a house that was filled with love and, and was like a balanced, warm, loving place to be and that's what i have and i'm just so incredibly happy the fact that guys like you and 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 slow twitch wants to talk to me it's like a dream come true like i can't believe this shit's happening to me and and i, I don't know i'm overwhelmed with uh gratitude i'm i'm so happy i'm so appreciative well ken we're super appreciative of you taking the time joining us here on that note we're gonna wrap up this week's episode of the slow twitch podcast uh Ken, again, really appreciate you coming on, sharing a little bit of your story, and uh, hopefully we'll get to catch up with you again down the road. Oh, thank you guys, man. I appreciate it to the triathlon community. I love you all. Thank you for giving me my start in endurance sports. Maybe someday I'll come back and uh, give everyone a chance to kick the shit out of me. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. <laughs>